Well, let's pray. Well, Father, we, uh, we are astonished that we are able to gather, that um, you have done such a work in history, uh, that you have spoken such a word, that you have acted in such a way that we can come to know you, the living God of the universe. We thank you that you have called us together in this place, even tonight, and we pray that through our time together, through uh, hearing your word, through reflecting on it, please, that you would give us a deeper insight into you and your ways and our lives and how they're to be lived and that please by that you would bring honour to yourself. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the things, um, you know, we're always trying to do, people who do this kind of thing speak to groups of people, is you're always trying to find some way to kind of in the very first little bit grab people's attention. Because otherwise, as soon as someone stands up to speak, you will have a sleep. And so it's trying to you know, get hold of you and whatever. And I want to suggest that tonight, the Bible reading is its own attention grabber. Genesis chapter 22. What a, wow, I mean, what we've just read in Genesis 2, uh, an event actually that happened about 1,800 years before Jesus, so almost 4,000 years ago. Um, an event that happened to the man Abraham. Uh, he is told uh, by God, Genesis 22, to take his son, his only son, and kill him. Take him to a mountain and stab him as a sacrifice uh, on, that, uh, on that hill. Now that's an attention grabber, isn't it? If you were alert as we were reading it, uh, I dare say you're kind of going, you're, 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 you're already... Uh, focused and uh, interested in what's happening. It's one of those passages that is hard to kind of sit distant from, uh, whatever you think of the Bible and God. If you're a Christian, if you're here tonight and you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, as many of you of course are, uh, for you it may be an attention grabber because you're going, you know, what is this? What's, what's with this sacrifice of Isaac? What's going on here? What's God doing? You might have all of those questions, you might have been wrestling with them through the week. But if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, you're not a uh, follower of the Lord Jesus, you're just a visitor, who we're glad to have you with us, but you might have the same kind of experience of what's going on here, but it might be a little bit more intense for you. It might be, uh, what's with this Bible that these people are listening to? What's with that God that they all believe in? What's going on here? So you might have some of those same kind of questions. It is a striking passage. It's a very simple passage. It starts with, chapter, grab your Bibles, chapter 22, verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Now that is, um, that, that's captivating, catching. It, it gets your attention. Uh, what is going on? Let me, I want to draw your attention to a couple of things as we go through it. We'll come back to the text a little bit more fully in a moment. But uh, I want you to notice first that God never intended Abraham to go through with the sacrifice. So when you get to chapter 22, verse 12, uh, God cries out, Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. And you get there, verse 13, Abraham looks up and sees a ram caught by its horns uh, already waiting there, uh, put there by the God who provides. So whatever was going on in this chapter, God never intended uh, this child to be killed by the father. It was a test. And not a test in terms of um, prove to me, you know, it's not that kind of I'm not sure you do and so on, not malicious, but a test to refine and deepen and so on. 
Um, it was never intended. And in fact, one of the things that's worth being aware of, that as I said, 4,000 years ago, uh, this kind of stuff, this is being uh, events that are recorded for us. During that time in history, human history, lots of religious contexts believed in child sacrifice. Um, I mean, you go across to South America, of course, with the Incas and what have you, and the, the, the thousands of children who were slaughtered uh, as sacrifices. One of the things that stands out in the Bible is the God of the Bible was utterly opposed to that kind of thing. For, for him, horrified that uh, religious practices and humans would be slaughtering like this. And so, uh, just to be alert, there's something here that's, that's deeper, that's um, not full yet in what's going on, uh, but don't be quick to condemn God in it because there's much uh, that you need to pick up as well. And also, it's worth noting that as you go through chapter 22, the nature of the account itself, inspired by God, the nature of the account itself has this sense of shock at how shocking this is. Um, let, let, let me show you. Verse 1, Sometime later God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said... See, that little interplay, uh, Abraham, here I am, uh, then God said, isn't necessary. Do, do you know, God, we could have just been told... Uh, Testing Abraham, God said, do this. But there's this little call to Abraham, Abraham responding, God then speaking. It's almost as if God's saying, and the recording of it's letting us being alert to this, that God's going, Abraham, this is big. I need to get your attention. Yes, here I am. Then God says. You get that repeated a couple of times through the passage that has this sense of, uh, the text telling us, the report telling us, this is big. God who acts through here knows it's big. And then the nature of the request itself there in verse 2. Um, then God said, take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, Isaac. Do you see the repetition? Your son, your only son, the son you love, Isaac. And that repetition gives you the sense again that God is aware that what he's about to ask is shocking. It's big. This is not God just sort of throwing out a command maliciously or thoughtlessly or carelessly as if it's no big deal. The text itself gives you all of these hints and indications. And as you run through the passage, um, there's a mix of description that's very interesting in the way it um, it reports, verse 3, early the next morning, Abraham gets up, loads his donkey. There's a lot of action that's recorded for us there. And then it pauses, verse 5, where Abraham says to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, then come back. You get this, uh, this kind of, Abraham knows what he's being asked to do and he speaks to the servants and we're told about how he has this quick conversation with the servants with all the pathos and pain that's part of it. The inspiration of the text itself tells you that this is big. And then Abraham uh, takes the wood, verse 6, and carries the fire and knife and so on. The two of them go up together. Isaac now speaks up and says, see how it's, it, this doesn't just happen. There's this whole slow, steady movement towards it because it's shocking. And Isaac says, Father, yes, my son, the fire and wood are here, Isaac, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham says, and we know that Abraham knows what he's about to do. So there's this kind of 
there's this, um, again, this sense of emotion in what Abraham's saying, what's behind in his mind. Um, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went up together. They kept going step by step to this horrible meeting. When they reached the place, verse 9, he told them that Abraham built, and you get this description again of all the things, and in very sort of um, bang, 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 he bound his son, laid him on the altar, on top of the wood. You don't need to know it's on top of the wood, you see, but he told all these details, and he takes the knife to slay his son. The whole thing builds and builds and builds to this shocking moment. The, The recording of it tells you we know it's shocking. God knows it's shocking. But verse 11, the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Um, You know, um, uh, this is an incredible test and the whole tone of the, the recording of it tells you God knows it's incredible. Everyone knows it's incredible. This is big because something shocking is being asked, a father to sacrifice his child. That is massive, right? But there's more to it than that, actually. If you've not been with us, even if you've been with you, let's remind you of it. Um, The nature of this test is bigger than even just the father giving up a son because the son that's being given up is the son of promise. Have you been with us over these weeks where back in Genesis chapter 12, extraordinary promises were made to Abraham about uh, the blessings of God and how God would bring blessings to the world through, you find out, a child of Abraham, an offspring of Abraham. Abraham doesn't have any kids and he's old, his wife is old, barren. And God says, no, no, the power of me, I will bring about this miracle of giving you a child who will be the key to blessing. That's Isaac. He's born as the key to the blessing of the world. And God is now asking the very key to the whole world being blessed for Abraham to take the life of that one. And Abraham's going, this is not just my son whom I love. This is the future hope of humanity. What is happening here? It's an astonishing test. Um, Now, uh, uh, what's this piece about? What's Genesis 22 about? What's the point of it in the Bible? Is it put here just to tell us that God sometimes tests his people? Yeah, kind of, because it's true. The Bible's quite adamant that God does test his people, not as someone who's trying to prove you wrong, but as someone who's trying to draw out from you the true heart that you have, that it might be revealed and strengthened and tempered and deepened. He's trying to test and prove you in that sense. Um, Yeah, God does test, but I don't think it's here just for that. It's here in part for that. It's it's actually what you see here is the movement of God's great promises through history. God has promised in chapter 12 and chapter 15 and so on, blessings to the world. And what follows from here in verse 15 is God now swearing again to fulfill his promise to bring an offspring, a great nation and blessing. Uh, so this, is, this has a part in the whole of movement of God's promises to the unit, to the world, to save humanity through uh, Abraham and his child. But it's also here because according to the New Testament, this passage helps us understand what it's like to be in relationship with the God of the universe. 
That's in part why it's here. And that therefore becomes massively relevant to all of us. Most of us are followers of the Lord Jesus. Many of us, some of us aren't. But either this passage is to help us understand what it's like to live in relationship with the living God. You see, what does it look like to be in relationship with God? Christian or not, I think you know what I'm talking about. The vast majority of people have some kind of answer to that question. Uh, What does it look like to be in relationship with God? What have you got to do to be in relationship with God? Now, I'm interested that people I talk to... uh, almost always have an answer to that question. I was, uh, if you weren't aware, but my wife and I were on a boat for some time, sailing and so on, and we, uh, we had a, another couple join us for a part of that time. And, um, and little did they know what they were jumping into when they joined us. But anyway, um, they weren't churchgoers and, or Christians, and we, we had numbers of conversations. And at one point I said to him, um, what, you know, if, if you die, what do you think you need to do to make sure you're right with God you go to heaven? Now, he had an answer. He wasn't a Christian man. He didn't, wasn't religious, but he had an answer. And his answer was this. He said, uh, look, I, you know, I'm just trying to live my life the best I can, be the best person I can, um, not uh, leave any damage behind, make sure the environment that I leave behind is better than when I was here. Uh, and I'm sure if there is a God, you see, he wasn't even sure, if there is a God, I'm sure I'll be fine with him. He had an opinion about what you need to do to be right with God, to be accepted by God. And most people have something of that opinion. And even when people don't believe there's a God, actually just believe in the spirit world, the spirit realm, spiritualism, they have an idea of how you get in touch with that spirit realm. You know, you, you, you make sure you're in tune with the universe and in tune with the environment and you don't destroy and hurt and so on. Leave the world a better place. Now, in these instances, both the man I was talking to and perhaps the spiritual person both have answers to this question. And in some ways, though they've got differences, there's a similarity. There's a number of similarities. One of the ones I want to draw attention to tonight is this. The way they both work out the answer is the same. If you're here tonight and you've got an answer, you're not a follower of Christ, but you've got an answer about what I need to do to be right with God, if you've got an answer to that question, the question for you is, how did you work it out? Now, don't say anything, of course, but how did you work it out? Normally, what I find is people work it out just by thinking it up themselves. You know, if I were God, what do I think I would want if I was a per- I, I would want this from a person, so that's what I want for God, you see, and they think it out. And what it ends up doing, it ends up that we end up telling God what he should want from us to accept us. So what it ends up doing is humans end up assuming that what we think God should want is what God must want. We end up telling him what he must have. Do you see the problem with that? 
You know, in our day and age, we've become very reasonably good at understanding relationships and how they work. We're not good at making them work, but we understand how they're meant to work. And in the relationships, we've worked out one of the principles is that relationships don't work well when one person in the relationship just assumes that they know what's best for the other person in the relationship without ever having to ask them. So I don't know, you, you're in a relationship, uh, boyfriend, girlfriend or something like this, and uh, you, you've got a, a friend who um, just just decides what you should want from them and how you should be towards them and they've never actually stopped to wonder what you actually want in a friendship. Now, that is not a recipe for a good relationship. The, the, the man decides that um, what, you know, what my wife really needs from me is for me to work hard, earn lots of money, uh, even though I'm busy, I'm sure that's what she really needs. And she's going, if you'd stopped and asked her, she's going, no, I don't, I don't need that, I don't want that, I want... But he's not listening. Not a good way to make relationships work. A key to relationships is understanding what the other person wants. Now, you can see... Uh, much, therefore, of the problem of modern human thinking about the way we relate to God. Basically, what we've done is we've decided to work out what we think he should want and we've imposed our views on him. I think that what you need from me is to me to keep all the commands, be as good as I can and make sure the environment's good and, people, and I don't hurt anyone. And if that's what I've done, you should be happy with me. Are you aware that now we are telling God what he should want and how he should be? Do you sense just a little arrogance there? What if that's not what he wants from us? Now, of course, it begs the question, how would you know what he wants? Surely it makes sense to ask him, but how would you know what he wants? Well, the Christian answer has always been, we know what he wants from the Bible. The Bible is actually him introducing himself to us and telling us what he wants, if we would but listen. Now, I know that begs all kinds of questions about how do you know the Bible is God speaking to us and so on, and there's a lot more that could be said there. We don't have time tonight. There's a dozen or so reasons why it actually makes sense and is appropriate and what have you, but just work with me on it tonight. The Bible is claiming that this is God telling us his world, what he wants, and our task is to listen to him. The episode in Genesis 2 about Abraham, it's recorded for us to help us understand who God is, what he's like and what he wants from us. Now, what is it that he wants from us? Not that we sacrifice our children. What is it that he wants from us? Here it is. That we trust him that we trust him. When he speaks, that we listen and trust him. That's what he wants. Take your child, your only child, the child you love, Isaac, and sacrifice him. This is an intense test of Abraham's attitude towards God and his word. It's a test of whether Abraham trusts God or not. It's a test of what Abraham thinks of God. Will you be prepared to give up the most precious thing in your life, Abraham? And precious to me, God as well, actually. Are you prepared to give up that which is most precious to you 
because I've asked you to. Now, just think for a moment what would be going through Abraham's mind at this point. Um, Now, we don't know exactly, but this is clearly a child he loves. We're told that. Abraham's not callous. He's been asked to give up the life of his only child, to give up the life of a child that God has said is the key to the blessing of the whole world. What, What is necessary in Abraham's head and heart for him to do what is being commanded of him? What has to be going on in this man's head and heart for him to go through with taking this child to sacrifice him on the mountain? Let me tell you what I think is going, what is necessary for Abraham. It's necessary that he has bucket loads of faith in God. Now just a quick comment about faith. We use faith in all kinds of ways and it gets confusing. The word faith just means trust. It just Most of the time you see the word faith, you can replace it with the word trust. It just means bucket loads of trust in God, confidence in God, the ability to, to, to depend on God because God is trustworthy. What's necessary for Abraham to go through with this is a deep and profound confidence that God is trustworthy. He is good. And bucket loads of respect of God. What the Bible here in verse 12 calls the fear of God, which is shorthand, I take it, of saying that Abraham has this attitude towards God that God's desires for Abraham and his life matter more to Abraham than his own pleasure. He has a bucket load of respect for God and regard for God and honour of God and fear of God that if God says to do something he does it no matter the cost to himself he is more concerned to please God than please himself this is profound what is going on here it's a deep insight into the mature life of Abraham Abraham was not always like this he's been on a journey Uh, Back in chapter 12, he's called to leave and go to a new place. He does it because God called him. But he's been on his own faith journey that's been up and down. There's been times when God has made promises and Abraham and his wife have laughed. Not possible. But there's been times when God's made promises and they've finally come to them senses and believed those promises. Genesis chapter 15 verse 6 is a critical one. Go and chase it up. Genesis 15 6. God made promises to Abraham and Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was counted as right with God because he did what God wanted. Trust me. And he trusted him in Genesis 15. There have been down times when he wouldn't trust God with his wife and lied about his wife. But now as an older man, he's learned about this God. If God asks something of him, it must be for a good reason. If God asks him to do something, it must be for a good reason. He trusts his God. He, he fears his God. If God asks him to sacrifice that which is most precious to him, he would rather please God than keep that precious thing you see this passage bites in a number of ways one is this even as we read it it raises the question for us sitting here tonight and it's doing this right now it's raising the question for you in your life tonight what place does God have in your life how do you think about God is God really more important to you than anything else Now, none of us are being asked to sacrifice a child. But even just watching as someone was asked to sacrifice their child, 
is itself disturbing, depending on your attitude about God. Because even the way you react to hearing Abraham's been asked to take Isaac and kill him, even your reaction to that little episode says something about what you think of God. And for us, um, do you know, in an older crowd of people, parents with kids, you might say that the thing that triggers them is the thought that a, a parent would kill their child. That's the most disturbing thing about this. Perhaps for you, that's not what's most disturbing. Perhaps what's most disturbing is the thought that God would ask that the, the boy, the young man Isaac, um, would be bound and lose his freedom and lose his rights to live his life the way he wants. And you find that deeply offensive. That how, that how dare God do that? And you might find yourself reacting to this passage for all these reasons. Who does God think he is? That he would ask a person to give up that which is most precious. Who does God think he is that he would cause a young man to lose his freedom and be constrained, bound and killed like that? Who does God think he is? Now, is it possible that some of that's happening in your own heart tonight? Is that possible? Now, we've not given an answer yet about, um, you know, what's going on here and why and so on. But I want you to feel the question, what is going on in your heart? You know, and the reason I want you to feel it, it was a bunch of reasons. As a church, um, we don't want to be that place where... um, you, you, you know, you, you step out of the car to, when you arrive at church and you kind of, you switch on church face, do you know, which is, I just, I just stop thinking and I just believe whatever the church tells me. We don't want that. We want this to be a place where you come with honesty, with all your uncertainties and concerns and your questions. We want this to be a place where there is real honesty and there's a debate and discussion and so on. Don't pretend you don't have problems with these things. That's not what we want. Um, We want you to feel the pain. And the problem is this, for most of our world, here's how it functions. For most people in the world, God is an acceptable idea and even someone we might believe in if he agrees with us in what we think matters most in life. And the thing that matters most to us most people here tonight, I dare say, is human freedom. Is the right of a person to be whoever they want to be. The right of a person to be free and live their life, live the life they want to live, the way they want to live it. And I'll believe in a God if he also affirms that conviction as well. But but woe betide a God who disagrees with us on that as a value. Who actually says to us, no, 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 human freedom is not the greatest thing that ought to be. We go, well, I, I can't believe in that God. The God I want to believe in is, do you see what we do as a world? What we've done as a world is we've created a set of our own priorities, the things we value, and we insist that God values what we value. We've ended up making God in our own image. The things that matter to us are the most important things and God fits in if he agrees with those things but lesser to those things. He needs to be, he needs to, I'll only serve and follow him if he actually makes these things most important as well. Abraham had all of this completely reversed. 
For him, God first, his command and word first, his will was more precious to him, get this, than the life of his only child. What God wanted was more precious to him than the life of his only child. Or, perhaps more nuanced, um, he was so confident in the God that he served that he knew that if he was calling him to do this, there was another way that it would work out. He trusted God and was prepared to fear him above his own concerns. Now, that is astonishing, but that is Abraham. Now, the question for us, therefore, that comes is, was Abraham right to think like this about God? You, you said, begs this question, who is God in our world? Who is he truly? What place ought to he have in our world, in your life? Well, the Bible's answer is this. Who is God in our world? He's everything. He is the creator of all things. He's the sustainer of all things. Your life at every moment. He's the life giver. He's the one who gives us beauty and goodness and riches and love. He's the one who gives all of these things. And he's the saviour. He wouldn't go through with asking Abraham to give up his only son, the son he loves. But that's exactly what the God of the universe did in the first century. He sent his only son, the son that he loves, to die. He gave up his life that you might live. He would never ask Abraham to do that. But that's exactly what he did. Because he's the saviour who loves. The Bible's answer is not just that we should have God as first in our life, but that to do anything else is the greatest foolishness imaginable and the most offensive thing that you could do. Now, now, I get it. If you're sitting there tonight and you're going, oh, um, I don't quite... If, If you're sitting there and God is just an idea to you, you know, this kind of distant thing out there, just a thought. If he's like that, I get it that you would find it very hard to give up something that's right here amongst you, something that everyone else values, to value him over that. I get that gets tricky, right? I understand. Um, but it's only like that if you think God is just an idea. And the whole Bible is written to make sure we break that apart. The Bible's written to introduce us to God, to help us see him. That he's not just some wispy spirit in the ether out there, but that he loves you. He is real. He's personal. He created you for good. He created you for relationship with himself. He's generous. He gives us all the things that we enjoy. And he gives us all of these things because he loves. (laughs) And he overflows with goodness. And he upholds you at every moment, despite the fact that every one of us has turned against him and have paid no heed to finding out what he wants from us. We've just told him what he should want from us. And yet he continues to uphold us. And then he comes to find us. While we were his enemies, he gave his only son. 
He did not spare his son, Jesus. All of that should soften your heart. My wife and I saw a movie uh, the other night called The Mother. Um, it's, uh, I think it was on Netflix. Who knows anymore where these things are? But um, it's not, don't chase it up. Well, maybe. It's two out of five. It's not a great movie, right? But uh, it's, got, um, it's got Jennifer Lopez in it. She plays a, um, uh, uh, an assassin, a highly trained assassin who can just kill people with a look or something she's she's an astonishing assassin but she's pregnant and she gives birth to a child and she's being chased by all her enemies and she knows that her whole life will be lived with these enemies trying to kill her and if she keeps the child the child's life will be forever in danger and so she goes through the movie tries to portray this sense of her great grief and anguish of giving up her only child to a foster home where the child will be raised without having to be fearful of always being chased so um, Lopez gives up the daughter, the, the, the daughter that she loves and weeps over because it's the best way to love this child, to make sure the child has the best chance of life and spends the rest of her days grieving the loss but trying to protect the child from a distance, you know, trying to watch over her and stop anyone getting her and so on. Eventually, the two, so the child grows up never knowing its mother and is angry with its mother and her mother and so on and so forth. But um, eventually they come back together because... Uh, the child is kidnapped. I'm going to give away the movie, actually. I try not to in the morning. I'm just going <laughs> to tell you the whole thing. Um, the, the child is kidnapped and um, Lopez uh, swoops in to rescue the child and eventually they, they bump up against each other and the child begins to twig to the fact that this is her real mother and she's angry at the mother. Until, the mother, until what emerges is the story of why she's not been in the child's life and how it's because of her love of the child, to protect the child. And, and eventually a whole platoon of, um, of uh, assassins come to destroy them all and Lopez kills all of them um, and, um, and protects the daughter and the daughter uh, sees how much the mother loves her and why she's chosen the life she's chosen to protect her and her heart is softened, her heart is melted and to end the movie, they all love each other, right? So that's how it ends, right? But... Um, now, there you are, sorry about that, saved you two hours of your life. Um, <laughs> but but it, it, the movie's got lots of plot holes, okay? It's got lots of gaps, like Lopez, really? Kills a platoon of soldiers? Come on, but anyway. Um, uh, but, but the thing, I think, is just, it's just an illustration to help us appreciate that the daughter grows up angry with her mother's, ab- with her mother's hiddenness. The mother was always around, she never knew it, protecting the child and guarding her. But the, the mother stayed hidden and the, and the child is angry that the mother's not in her life until she finds out why and how much it cost the mother to do this good to the child. And then she melts and softens because she has another way to make sense of what's happening and sees actually it's the love of the mother for her. Do you see where this is going? God, in his world, appears absent, though he's not, but he is certainly often hidden. You can't see him readily. You can see evidence of him in the creation around us and so in the history of this thing, but, but he's often hidden. And it's easy to create a story around the hiddenness of God, which is he doesn't care. He's not worthy of our adoration. He's not worthy of following. Much better to follow that I can see. The Bible's about helping us see why God is doing that 
And it's not because of apathy, it's because of our sin. It's because of rebellion in the world. It's because of the frustration he's created. There's all kinds of reasons, but it's driven by his love and holiness. And when you begin to see that, you begin to go, oh, it's, it's actually his devotion to his world that's caused him to be like this. And then you see he has actually given us concrete evidence of his love by coming into the world in human history in the first century and taking on the form of a man and giving himself over to death, even death on a cross, paying the ultimate price of love for us. And in all of this, what God is saying, what he's asking of us is to trust him. To trust him. He's given us evidence that he's trustworthy. Promises that he made back in Genesis that have been fulfilled all the way down. The history of the coming of the offspring, Jesus. He has given us all of these evidences, but much of life he remains hidden. And he says, don't. Don't buy into the false story that the reason I'm hidden is because I'm, I'm absent or apathetic. Or No, 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 no. There are reasons beyond what you could hope to understand. You know, one day we'll be taken to see all that he has done and why he has done what he has done. And when we come to that point, we will fall down in praise and worship. Uh, we'll, be, we'll be completely blown away by the beauty, glory and greatness of God who has done what he's done with the wisdom that he has brought to it. There was a good purpose to it all. You see, what does God want of us? It's not what you think he wants. He doesn't want us to earn his favour as if we ever could. What he wants of us is to trust him, to trust him when he speaks, to fear him and hold him above all other things in life because he is worthy of being held above all other things in life. Brothers and sisters, this is massive. You see, it critiques two things to finish with. It critiques the foolishness of thinking God needs me to be as good as I can be to earn his favour. Let me show you this actually. It critiques these... You, 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 we come up with the idea that I just need to be a good person and we earn the, the favour of God and everything will be alright. And God says, no, that's not what I want from you. You can never pull it off anyway. What I want from you is to be saved by just trusting my son. To put your faith in Jesus who died in your place, paid the debt that you needed to pay but couldn't pay. Trust him. God says, that's what I want from you. And if you trust him like Abraham did in Genesis 15 verse 6, I will count you as right with me. You'll be saved. That's what I want from you. Not to be the best person you can to earn your way. You can't, you can't earn your way with God. You see, it corrects that error. But it corrects an error that's in church, actually. You don't see a lot. Well, you see some of that in church. But you see amongst Christians this other side. Come and look at this. You end up with people going, ah, oh, we're saved by just trusting in Jesus. So all we have to do is just believe and it then doesn't matter what you do. You can live however you like. You can sleep with your girlfriend, you can get drunk whenever you like, you can do whatever you like. It doesn't matter because you're forgiven and we're not, we're not perfect people, we're just forgiven people and that's all beautiful and good. But that's wrong. And Genesis chapter 22 tells you it's wrong. Because Genesis 22 comes after Genesis 15. Genesis 15, he is declared right with God upon believing. But God then expects Abraham to live his whole life day by day 
trusting him. To not just do it once at a rally or, or, or a youth night, or, but to do it every day. Now as someone who has been declared right with God by the merits of Jesus, saved, I'm to live every day differently because I'm now one in relationship with the God of the universe who is trustworthy. I'm to spend every... If he commands me, then I trust him by obeying it. If he makes a promise, I trust him by believing it. If he says, don't do something, I trust him by not doing something. I trust him by doing what he says every day. If your faith in Jesus is the kind of faith that's not changed your life, then it's not a saving faith. It's just mere believerism. Your faith in Jesus alone saves you. You don't need works. You don't need to earn it. But the kind of faith alone that saves you always brings a transformation of life where every day you now seek to trust him with your life. This is the point of the way the New Testament reflects back on this passage, say in James chapter 2. You see, God is testing you all the time. Not because he's sending private messages that you have to filter out and decipher and so on. It's not like that. He's given us public tests and those public tests are the commands of scripture. His test is this, will you trust me enough that when I tell you to love your enemy, you'll love your enemy? When I tell you to forgive those who sin against you, you'll do it. Will you trust me to do this? When I tell you to not sleep with your girlfriend or not sleep with your boyfriend, will you trust me and do it, obey me? Because that's what being saved looks like. I now trust God with his commands. When I tell you to not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, will you trust me and make sure you meet every week with God's people? Will you trust me and do it? You see, life is meant to be different now that I... Like Abraham, we are meant to demonstrate every day, weekly, that we fear him above all else, that we trust him above all else, that he is at the centre of our life. God tests us with the commands of scriptures. Do you really believe me? Then do it, obey me. But he also tests us in very painful things. He will test you at various points in your life by taking things away. Taking small things away like a car, a relationship, a girlfriend, boyfriend. He'll take things away. And at that point, he'll say to you, trust me in this. I'm working all things together for good. Trust me. There will come a time when he'll take away bigger things. He'll take away your health. Or he'll take away someone you love very dearly. A parent or a spouse or a child. And at those points in the midst of your grief, he, he, he wants you to know that what he's done was not malicious or callous. It, it was like what he did with Abraham. He came gently towards but took. And he wants you to know he loves you. And he calls on you to trust. In the midst of your uncertainties and all the questions, the hiddenness, what's going on, he says, trust me. Look to Jesus. Look to what I've done for you and shown for you in Jesus of my love. And trust me, the Christian life is a long, long race. 
It's a long run. It's not by works. It's not by mere believerism. It's lived by trusting Jesus every day and living differently every day. Let's pray. Well, Father, we ask, please, that you might strengthen us in this race, that you might help us to be um, people who do trust you, who appreciate your goodness, your greatness, your glory, that you are working all things together for good, that you can be trusted. We pray, please, that you would help us trust you when you command us, that we'd obey them. Helps to trust you when you take things to know that there's more than we could ever understand going on, to trust you for your goodness in it all. Help us please to run this race before us to the very end, confident that you are at work in all things. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.